Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. I, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials are items read at Ayers LA, are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. Known authorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so let's get into it. We're going to start off, uh, unfortunately, with an obituary. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 12, 2024. Norma Barsman, 1920 to 2024. Blacklisted screenwriter was a keeper of the flame. She said being female stymied her career more than being labeled a communist by Jill Levy. Norma Barsman, a blacklisted screenwriter who spent nearly three decades in exile and later forced Hollywood to reckon with its red-baiting past, has died at her Beverly Hills home. She was 103. Active until late in life. Barsman died December 17, 2023, according to a social media post from her daughter, Suzo Barsman. I lost a big piece of my heart Sunday afternoon, Suzo Barsman wrote in a December 19 Instagram post. My mother, Norma Barsman, died at home peacefully, surrounded by family, had a long life full of stories and accomplishments. Her sharpness and joy was intact to the end. Whenever someone asked her secret to longevity, she would just answer that she loved every part of life, people, and never stopped working. I'm grateful to have seen, to have been able to spend these last years with her. I will miss her deeply, but she will live on in me. Barsman, Barsman's early gains in the film business, like those of other blacklisted writers, evaporated rapidly after the House Un-American Activities Committee launched a purge of suspected communists from Hollywood beginning in the late 1940s, and she devoted her later years to exposing the era's hurtful and often career-altering practices. But she always maintained that her career was stymied by something more. She was a woman in male-dominated Hollywood. The blacklist can only be partially blamed, she told an interviewer for the 1997 blacklist chronicle Tender Comrades, a, black a backstory of the Hollywood blacklist. Much of the problem resulted from the position of women and from my not having fought adequately enough for my rights, she added. She said she was denied screenplay billing for one of her first successful screenplays, Never Say Goodbye, 1946, written with husband Ben Barsman, not because of her membership in the Communist Party, but because the studio didn't want a woman's name in the credits. After moving with her family to Europe, in 1949 to avoid being subpoenaed by HUAC, which had launched an investigation into suspected communist infiltration of Hollywood two years earlier, she said she became a retiring housewife. A mother of seven, she lived in her husband's shadow, contributing to his work, but neglecting her own ambitions. The couple returned to Los Angeles in 1976. Only in her later years did Norma Barsman flourish anew as a writer and activist. She became a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, completed two memoirs, and advocated on behalf of writers whose careers were ravaged by the blacklist. In 1999, she helped lead a campaign against the awarding of an honorary Oscar to Elia Kazan, the celebrated director who informed on friends suspected of being communist. Though Kazan received the Oscar, many attending the, the reward ceremony refused to applaud and hundreds of protesters gathered outside the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion that night. 
Barsman later spoke on national television, accusing Kazan of seeking to advance his career in Hollywood at the expense of his former friends. The episode prompted a wave of blacklist remembrances, and the Barsman's Romanga writers honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award from a UCLA graduating class in screenwriting. Kazan died in 2003. Barsman's recollections of the blacklist years, though, always remained entwined with her struggles as a woman in Hollywood. Feminism was high on the list of reasons she had become a communist, she wrote. She had, been, she had been struck by how women in the Soviet Union worked alongside men. And when asked about her years in exile, she responded that she resented most that being away had deprived me of participating in the American women's movement. Born at Norma Lavor in New York City on September 15, 1920, Barsman attended Ratcliffe College. As a young woman, she moved briefly to Paris, where she spent much of her childhood. After a short marriage to mathematician Claude Shannon, she ended up in Los Angeles, where a cousin, Henry Myers, had forged a successful career in Hollywood. She got a job as a reporter at the Los Angeles Examiner and began working as a screenwriter. She met Ben Barsman at a party to support Russian war relief, married him in 1943, and soon after joined him as a member of the Communist Party. When editors at the Examiner told the paper's owner, William Randolph Hearst, that Barsman was a communist, Hearst shrugged, I don't care if she's a communist, she's a good reporter, and I never fire a good reporter. The Barsman supported the Hollywood Ten, a group of writers and directors connected to the Screen Actors Guild who were subpoenaed by HUAC but refused to cooperate with its investigations. Studios refused to hire writers named as communists or fellow travelers and successful writers such as Dalton Trumbo and Ring Lardner Jr. were drummed out or relegated to writing under fake names. The Barsmans avoided being forced to name names by remaining in England during a filmmaking trip in 1949. They stayed overseas, living in Paris and the south of France, and others in Hollywood identified them as communists and the government suspended their passports. Years later, when she obtained the FBI files on her husband and herself, Barsman discovered that agents had tattailed them for years in Europe. Ben Barsman, whose successful films included The Boy with Green Hair, continued to write uncredited films for European filmmakers while his wife's career foundered. His uncredited contributions, later restored, include the movies El Cid, starring Sophia Loren and Charlton Heston, The Locket, and Luxury Girls. Barsman said it was only after her husband died in 1989 that she came uh, blossoming out and began writing again. Her 1990 columns for the Los Angeles Times combined humor with reflection about aging. She also became a keeper of the blacklist flame, said Larry Siplar, co-author of The Inquisition in Hollywood, Politics in the Film Community, 1930-1960. Barsman continued to work and contribute to blacklist retrospectives well into her 90s. She wrote two memoirs, The Red and Blacklist, The Intimate Memoir of a Hollywood Expatriate, and The End of Romance, a memoir of love, sex, and the mystery of the violin. In reviewing her Hollywood memoir, the New York Times wrote, The book is also a testament of anger toward the squalid congressional committee that made bean soup of the First Amendment and toward the men who would helped, had helped her back. 
Barsman told Sepler that she had ceased involvement with the Communist Party in 1949, but did not fully abandon her former feelings until communism, uh, toward communism until 1968. Although she reproached herself for being blind, some critics found fault with her unapologetic stance. Barsman countered that the communist scare mutilated and degraded our culture for generations. Her writings blended political reflection with explorations of her struggles as a wife and mother. In 2000, she explained her activism to a reporter this way. You have to work at things, whether it's a marriage or a democracy. Barsman is survived by her seven children, including Suzo Barsman and writer-director Paolo Barsman. That was Norma Barsman, 1920-2024, blacklisted screenwriter was Keeper of the Flame by Jill Levy from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 12, 2024. Levy is a former Times staff writer. Staff writer Carlos De Lera contributed to this report. All right, now we've got a special story here from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 20th, 2023. This is called A Thai Love Story in Israel Threatened by War Captivity. For abducted farm worker, one pain was worse than all the others by Max Kim. Ben Hate Thailand. It was around 5.30 a.m. that Yo's fiancé heard the explosions that shook her awake. Let's go to the bunker, he said. Seeking shelter from incoming rockets had become routine to Natawari Yo Munkin, a 35-year-old Thai farmhand who worked in a village called Tahim in southern Israel, a few miles from the Gaza border. But on that day, October 7, the bunker by their home was already packed with people and dogs, so her husband-to-be, Buntam Pankong, suggested they go to the one at the fruit packing factory where they worked, a short bike ride away. They arrived to find one, to find one other Thai worker inside. Together, they listened to the distant crack of rifle fire inch closer and tried to swallow their unease. Yo whispered to Buntam, Okay, the Israeli soldiers are coming to rescue us. But the armed men with severe expressions who appeared in the doorway were wearing military uniforms different from the olive drab fatigues she had seen on the Israeli soldiers. That's when I knew something was wrong, she recalled. Yo explained in frantic Hebrew that she and Buntam were from Thailand and worked at the fruit, pack fac fruit packing factory. The men grabbed them anyway and loaded them onto a pickup truck. The attack on southern Israel was in full swing. Even now, Yo cannot bring herself to describe what she witnessed on the drive over. We weren't blindfolded, she said. I saw everything. The truck arrived in the Gaza Strip to more pandemonium, missiles and gunshots flying from every direction. The captors shouted and gesticulated for them to run for cover. Leo and Buntam took off in different directions, and just like that, he was gone. They had met in the fruit packing factory about four years ago, not long after Yo arrived in Israel. Both were from poor farming families in northeastern Thailand and had come to Israel for the same reason, to pay off their families' debts which amounted to a lifetime of work on Thai wages. It was a story common to the 30,000 Thai laborers in Israel 6,000 of whom worked near the Gaza border. Yo had been working since she was 17, first at a jewelry factory in Bangkok, then on a beetroot and spring onion farm in Australia, following, followed by a stint of 
instead of growing cucumbers in South Korea, where she was pregnant with her daughter, Mina. With the father out of the picture, she and Mina, she left Mina with her mother, who was already caring for Yo's older son. Boontaba noticed her packing the harvested fruit, a turnip variety Yo describes as a cross between a potato and apple, and had been love-struck. He was gentle and hard-working, so Yo had loved him back. He didn't speak much, but he showed through his actions, Yo said. I felt safe around him. Things moved fast, and within a month or two, they vowed to be together. Despite the lack of a marriage certificate, they regarded each other as husband and wife. They planned for a future together after they had each paid off their family's debts, buying their own plot of land in Yo's hometown and starting up a chicken and organic vegetable farm. On Saturdays, to supplement the $1,500 they each earned every month at the factory, they biked around together looking for side jobs, offering their services to any farm owner that needed extra workers. Working in greenhouses in the dry heat of southern Israel was suffocating, but Yo grew to love her life. I've always loved farming, Yo said. It's not easy to deal with plants. Once it grows a stem, you have to tie it to a support so it grows in a certain direction but it's very satisfying to see the result when that succeeds. In a line of work where bad employers and poor labor conditions are common, Yo considered herself one of the lucky ones. Her supervisors at the turnip packing factory had welcomed her like family. One of them had been an Arab man, about 40 years old. Was he Palestinian? In retrospect, Yo thinks so, although she can't be sure. She had never thought to ask. On holidays, the man would cook extra food for her and Buntam. Lamb, potatoes, peppers, bread, and sauces whose names she cannot remember. She introduced, he introduced them to his wife who adored them. Of all the foreigners I met during my working life overseas, he made me feel the most at home, Yo said. I liked him a lot. On her first day in, ya in Gaza, Yo realized that she had gotten her period and asked one of her captors for sanitary pads, which he brought. She asked where she was. You are in Gaza, the man replied. What is Gaza? It is Palestinian land. Until then, Yo had given little thought to the fragile politics of the region. The occasional rocket flying overhead had seemed to her simply a part of the landscape, distant from uh, the questions of her own livelihood and survival. At first, she said, she was kept at a house, along with several other hostages. But as the Israeli military began its bombing campaign of Gaza, the building would judder dangerously with every nearby hit. The fear that Bhutan had come to harm it gnawed at her. I had never been so scared in all my life, she said. All I could do was pray. After two weeks, Yo noticed that the explosions were getting closer. Then, during one particular hectic episode, someone hoisted her on his back. Everything happened so fast, Yo said. The next thing I knew, I was underground. The section of the dimly lidded uh, and humid tunnel where they had been taken, Yo was the only Thai in a group of five or six others getting by with fragments of Hebrew and English. After about three weeks, the group Yo was with came into contact with another group that, that was being relocated. It included several other Thai workers, and the guards allowed them to stay together, but none of them had heard anything but of, of Buntam. The guards, visibly tense during the period in the house, seemed to soften up once they had made it into the tunnel.
They were dressed in civilian clothes, unarmed and unmasked. They spoke little, but would answer when the hostages asked for the time or date. There was no physical abuse, recalled Dio, and they were treated with respect. Some of their captors were kind, taking care to make sure that they had enough food, which consisted mostly of bread. Others were brusque, stingier with the rations, sometimes days with just a piece of bread. Each day, Yo apprehensively waited to see who would be in charge of guarding them. The explosions now sounded more muffled and far away, but the fear of being bombed stayed. I could tolerate hunger or physical discomfort, but not the feeling of not knowing what happened to Buntum, she said. It felt like my heart was being ripped out, and I lived with that feeling the entire time. A chance friendship provided snatches of distraction. One of the hostages in Yo's group, an Israeli woman named Danielle Alani, had been abducted with her five-year-old daughter, Emilia. One day, Alani approached Yo to introduce herself. In a mixture of Hebrew, English, and hand gestures, the women talked about going home. Yo taught Emilia how to count to ten and tie. To stay active, the three of them paced around the room. Then on November 23rd, their captors told them that they, were, they would be released. At first, Yo didn't believe it. They had made such promises before. But the next day, they were escorted out of the tunnel, Danielle and Yo trailing behind Amelia. A car picked them up outside. Boontam was waiting by the Red Cross bus near the border. After nearly two months of captivity, he had lost weight, just as she had, but was otherwise in good shape. Relief washed over Yo. We made it, uh, she told him. She, sneezed, she squeezed Boonthumb's hands as they began to recount their stories to each other. At the Israeli hospital where the ties were taken to be treated, a visitor came looking for her. It was her Arab supervisor and his colleague. They hugged her tightly. There were no debriefings with the Israeli government, Yo said. After the October 7 attack, around 9,000 Thai workers, most of them from the area by, by Gaza, had evacuated the country, sending Israeli agriculture into its own state of emergency. The turnip packing factory had lost all but five of its 50 Thai workers. Her su supervisors understood that for now. Yo would be returning to Thailand to be with her family. Still, they asked, would she consider coming back in the future? They needed her badly. Yo had re-emerged into a world permanently altered. Her place in it no longer the same. In her absence, she learned false rumors about her had, had proliferated, that she was the unarmed female foreign worker who had supposedly given birth in captivity, alluded to in a letter that Israel's first lady, Sarah Netanyahu, had sent to Jill Biden. Once I found out, uh, once I found out about that pregnancy thing, I just cried, she said. Watching the news and social media has been very upsetting. It has been less than three weeks since she returned home, her first time back in four years. But almost immediately, she has been stretched thin by demands on her time and attention. On her wrist was a say sin, a loop made of white string that she had received as the, at the homecoming ceremony her village had thrown for her the week before, and had been blessed by a monk and was meant to offer her protection. The ceremony had been a costly and elaborate affair, which she had to keep up a respectable public face despite suffering from nightmares in which she is back in the truck rattling toward Gaza nearly every night since returning home. That had been followed by another 
for Buntum, who was recently ordained as a monk and left to spend a week at his local monastery. But 110 hostages, including 23 Thais, were released in a hostage for prisoner swap during the week-long ceasefire between Israel and the militant group Hamas, which has sought the release of some of the 7,000 Palestinians being held in Israeli prisons, many of them children detained for offenses such as throwing rocks at Israeli soldiers and oftentimes without due process. More than 100 hostages are still being held in Gaza, with as many as nine believed to be ties. But the few hostage testimonies that have been made public so far have been piecemeal, in many cases conveyed second-hand through family members. Some have reported beatings and death threats, while others recall generally humane treatment and having been fed relatively well with chicken, canned foods, tea, and sweets. In the absence of a full and coherent picture elsewhere, the interview requests request to Yo have been relentless. That has been exhausting too, to be repeatedly mined for information that might provide the clarity the world craved for a taste of her pain. I just want to go back to a normal life, Yo said. Just after noon, as though to illustrate her point, a local news crew arrived at their gate, led by a young woman in round, round sunglasses who strode into their yard holding up a microphone. Yo's mother, Boone Yaron, rushed out to, the, to intercept them. Then Yo's phone rang. It was Boontam who said a different news crew had barged into his monastery asking for an interview. This is so rude, Yo told her mother. They don't respect me. They are constantly invading my privacy. The news crew had tried to appeal to Bunyarin by saying they had to fly back to Bangkok that night, but she shooed them off. They loitered around in the dirt driveway, evidently hoping she'd change her mind. Yo glanced at them, growing upset. It's always the same question. Nobody does their homework. Nobody bothers to ask the right questions, she said. Even the interviews that are conducted tactfully by well-meaning journalists drain something from her. The inevitable questions about the scenes of violence and death pick at, the, at still fresh wounds. These she cannot bring herself to answer. It's not that I don't want to give information, she said. I just don't want to revisit those memories. The Thai government has offered mental health services to returning hostages, and it sometimes occurs to Yo that talking through her experiences in a more composed settling might do her good. But waiting around it in the past or future is a luxury that has not been afforded to her. Poverty, she said, forces you to live only in the present. Instead, she has sought refuge in the domestic tasks that restore her sense of order and provides simple joys, such as cleaning. Now that she is out of work, the financial pressures are bearing down heavier than ever. There are still payments to be made on the car and house. All of their possessions in Israel, including a combined four months' worth of wages in cash that the couple had been planning to send home, were incinerated in the October 7 attack. Meanwhile, the payouts she has received from the, the Israeli and Thai government so far have added up to around $600. That's not even enough to cover expenses, Yo said. Earlier that day, Yo had visited the regional labor office in the city with her mother and daughter to apply for unemployment benefits, which would pay $143 a month and a one-time payout of $430 that the Thai government is offering workers returning from Israel. On the drive back, 
they received a phone call informing them that their electricity was being cut off because of unpaid bills. But it's no longer just financial worry occupying Yo's thoughts. Her mind keeps turning to the hostages who remain and the Palestinian children dying from Israel's continued assault on Gaza. The image of people losing their lives still flashes in my head. They will haunt me for the rest of my life. But none of this does anyone any good, Yo said. I feel a pain every time I think about the children of Gaza. They remind me of my daughter. Mina, who is nine, has also inherited the generational burdens of her family. One day this family will be hers uh, to support, but her future at least still feels wide open. I recently sat her down and told her, Once you turn 16, 15 or 16, you need to start learning English so you can go study abroad, Yo said. It doesn't have to be English. She can study Chinese and go to China, as long as she has a better future than me. Until then, there is still much for Yo to do. She and Butam will officially get married. They have not yet saved, enough, saved up enough to settle down in Thailand, so at some point their two will head back out to work. Israel? Maybe if things calm down. But Yo would not mind going back to Australia either. The news crew had finally given up and left, and, there, and the three generations lingered on the porch, sharing a fleeting moment of normality. Yo put, pulled out her new phone. Her old one had been lost on October 7. It's okay, I will start new memories with this phone, she said. She had managed to salvage from Facebook a few photos of her and Buntam's once happy life in Israel. She looked at them a little wistfully, disappearing for a while into the past. That was a Thai love story in Israel, threatened by war, captivity, by Max Kim, from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, December 20, 2023. Special correspondent, Shai uh, Yod, Young Sharenchai and Ban, Ban Haidt contributed to this report. Right, now here is another special article from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 2nd, 2022. Jewish Latinos reflect on history, culture. Light blue dreidels and fried churro waffles set the scene at the Illumina Jews of Color Hanukkah by Andrea Flores. When Nate Looney was younger, he used to grab his mother's passport to prove to naysayers that she really was from Panama, but it took him years to embrace his Jewish identity. Now Looney moves to the world without the need for receipts to prove he is both Afro-Latino and Jewish. All of those things can exist in one person, Looney said. In a time of increased hate crimes toward Jewish people and their communities, Looney's multiple identities allow him to understand the layers of discrimination that permeate day-to-day -day life. Racism still exists, but Latino Jews and Jews of color were dealing with multiple isms, Looney said. Looney's mother was born in Panama, Panama by way of Jamaica, which is home to Kingston's Shar Shalom Synagogue, one of five sand floor synagogues in the world. The reason why it has a sand floor is to absorb sound so people that were anti-Semitic would know there was praying going on in the synagogue, Looney said. Dutch Sephardic Jews first settled in the Caribbean island of Caraco, a tiny island 35 miles off the coast of Venezuela to escape anti-Semitism in Europe. There, they established the oldest surviving synagogue in the Americas, the Mikveh Israel Emmanuel Synagogue. According to the Brandeis Initiative on the Jews of the Americas, 
there are more than 750,000 Latin American Jews, and about half of them live in the United States. A 2021 Pew analysis found that roughly 4% of all U.S. Jews identify as Hispanic. Navigating both ethnic and religious identities can be a complex journey for Latino Jews, who often find themselves on the margin of each space. While it once seemed difficult for Looney to find a community of other Latino Jews, he, along with 40 other Jews of color, gathered at a Hollywood home to celebrate the seventh day of Hanukkah. Light blue dreidels, chocolate coin gelb, and fried churro waffles set the scene at the Illumina Jews of Color Hanukkah, which was part of New Roots Infinite Light Hanukkah Festival. New Roots is an organization that helps affinity groups host Hanukkah gatherings. The event was hosted by Jutina Eco, a nonprofit organization that celebrates and nurtures Latin Jewish identity. Jutina helped to bridge that connection between my Jewish identity and my Latin roots, Luni said. Ana Lucia Lopez Revoredo created Jutina and Company in 2019 for Latino Jews living in the U.S., whom she labels as the double diaspora in her training as a sociologist. I'm showing, I'm showing up with both of those identities all the time. I don't get to separate them. They're not fragmented. They inform everything that I do, Lopez Viareto said. As a Peruvian-Chilean-American Jew, Lopez Viareto always yearned for a community where both her Latina and Jewish identities could exist simultaneously. We are tray lettuce babka. We are spicy matzo ball soup, plant, platano latkas, yucca latkas. We are continuously expressing life at those two intersections, Lopez Revoredo said. Maya Ferdman believes there is something special about sharing the space with other Latino Jews. She just returned from Argentina, where she spent a year retracing her Jewish lineage to the, in the country back to the 1890s. For Ferdman, it's not a matter of picking between her Argentinian, American, and Jewish identities. So de aquí y soy de allá. I am here and I am from there and I can be both, Ferdman says. That idea of duality and multiplicity existing as one was the central theme at the Jews of Color Hanukkah gathering, an event exclusively for people who identify as Black, Latino X, Asian, Sephardic, and or Mizrahi. We can't know the value and brightness of light if we don't have this darkness, Lopez Riavoredo shared with the group. This season, Jewish individuals celebrated Hanukkah during a time of conflict between Israel and Hamas. On October 7, Hamas militants killed at least 1,200 Israelis and took 240 people hostage. Israel then launched attacks on the Gaza Strip, which have killed nearly 22,000 Palestinians while also displacing some 1.9 million others and flattening the northern part of the territory, according to the latest Associated Press report. I know this is a very different Hanukkah than we experienced last year, Lopez Viveredo uh, shared with the group. Lopez Rivoredo believes everyone is losing in the context of war right now, and dialogue is crucial. It's so important for us as a community that thrives around difference between to be able to talk and engage in conversation across differences, which isn't always easy, Lopez Rivoredo said. 
There is so many there there's so many things that touch people so differently, and we don't run away from those hard conversations. If we are to be as rich as we want to be in terms of diversity, that's also one of the things that we are going to be uh, diverse about, Lopez Rivaredo said. That richness in perspective rings true rings true for Guatemalan Jew Rebecca Orantes, who was a third-year rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College. People in Latin American countries experience high levels of stress due to violence, due to corruption. All those different things, at the end of the day, add up to our need to believe in something higher than ourselves that's taking care of us, Orantes said. Orantes lighted the seventh candle of a menorah. She said she has leaned into her strong Latin American Jewish faith this Hanukkah. Now with the ongoing Israel-Hamas war, Orantes' feelings around Hanukkah have become complicated. It's a heavy Hanukkah for me, Orantes said. I'm not going to lie. That was Jewish Latinos Reflect on History, Culture by Andrea Flores from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. All right, now we've got this from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 11, 2024. How Apartheid Came to be Associated with the Israelis by Tracy Wilkinson. The era of apartheid in South Africa is one of the darkest chapters of the 20th century. The world itself has become shorthand for systems of oppressive rule around the world. And even before the current war in Gaza unleashed a massive wave of demonstrations, it was an increasingly popular refrain of pro-Israel activists. But does the term apartheid accurately describe how Israel has treated Palestinians? Here's a look at the issue, a long-running debate among human rights experts. What is the origin of the word apartheid? In 1948, the newly empowered National Party in South Africa instituted a racial hierarchy to ensure dominance of the white descendants of Dutch colonizers. The party named the system apartheid, which in the Afrikaans language means the state of being separate. A litany of laws and regulations enforced rigid divisions among whites, blacks, Indians, and mixed-race colors, dictating where people could live, work, go to school, and even whether they could interact. At the bottom of the hierarchy was the black majority, which was relegated to geographically small townships away from city centers. Black South Africans were banned from owning property, voting, and attending certain schools. The government did not hesitate to use force to brutally and sometimes lethally express, repress opposition to the system, which became entrenched as much of the rest of the world was moving away from formal segregation laws and colonialism. How did the term come to be used outside South Africa? In 1973, the United Nations established the International Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid. In doing so, the UN broadened the definition of apartheid. No longer just an, an oppressive system in a single country, it now referred to inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. Separately, another UN convention, the International Convention on El the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, was used to broaden the word race as contained in the original definition of apartheid to include ethnicity, descent, and national origin. In 1993, the International Criminal Court reaffirmed apartheid as a crime against humanity and established the possibility of individuals being held responsible. 
the United States was among the few countries that did not ratify the 1973 Convention or other efforts to crack down on apartheid. U.S. officials argued that the definitions were weak and the U.S. has been generally reluctant to join international justice missions for fear its own people would be prosecuted. How did apartheid become associated with Israel? Israel sided with the United States in not ratifying the convention, in part because it began facing accusations that it was becoming an apartheid state. Most of the criticism came from Palestinians and others in the Arab world, but some originated from Israel's own leaders. In 1976, then-Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin said the then-nascent right-wing movement that pushed Jewish settlers into what was supposed, supposed to be Palestinian land was a cancer and an acute danger to Israel's democracy. He warned that it would lead to apartheid, a specter raised in later years by his successors Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert. In the last several years, as the Israeli government has moved further to the right, the apartheid label has gained currency among activists, including progressive Jews. There can be no democracy without occupation, Sharon Browse, a prominent Los Angeles rabbi, said in her Yom Kippur sermon last September, addressing the question of whether Israel could fairly be called an apartheid state. If the right-wing Israeli government succeeds in its attempts to strip the judicial of its power, she said, it will become increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to defend Israel from that characterization. So is Israel an apartheid state? After more than two years of research and arduous debate on the question, experts at Human Rights Watch released a 200-plus page report with an answer to that question. Citing Israeli officials who stated that they were determined to maintain Jewish-Israeli uh, control over demographics, political power, and land, the organization found that authorities have dispossessed, confined, forcibly separated, and subjugated Palestinians by virtue of their identity to varying degrees of intensity. It concluded that in Gaza and the West Bank, which together are home to 5 million Palestinians, these deprivations are so severe that they amount to the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. It did not include Israel proper, where 2 million or so Palestinians are Israeli citizens and make up about a quarter of the country's population. Why do rights groups make a distinction for Palestinian citizens of Israel? In Israel proper, Palestinians are a vast underclass with higher rates of unemployment and a lower overall standard of living than Jewish Israelis. But they have served in the Israeli parliament and on the Supreme Court and officials have the same legal rights as any citizen. That is a crucial difference from apartheid, which refers to a codified system of subjugation that goes far beyond other forms of discrimination. How does that compare with the West Bank? The situation is much different in the West Bank, which has, become, which has been occupied by Israel since 1967. Troops are deployed throughout the territory, where Palestinian officials have only nominal authority. The hundreds of thousands of Jewish settlers who have constructed and occupied villages in violation of international law receive protection from the army, move about freely, and are subject to an Israeli civilian legal system. Palestinians, on the other hand, face restrictions on where they can go, lose their land to settlers, and routinely fight what they describe as an onerous bureaucracy to secure the building permits granted easily to settlers. 
There are even separate roads for Israelis traveling through the West Bank. Moreover, a Jewish settler who breaks the law goes to a civilian court and often receives minimal punishment while a Palestinian is sent to, sent to a military court often without due process, international and Israeli human rights groups say. Supporters of Israel resistance the apartheid label Supporters of Israel, Israel resist the apartheid label, arguing that the system is necessary for security reasons. The South African system of apartheid was driven by unambiguous racism, where people were separated in every aspect of their daily lives on the basis of their skin color, said Jonathan Harana, communications director for the Jewish Institute for National Security of America, a Washington advocacy group. In the West Bank, on the other hand, any restrictive policies there in, pa in place toward Palestinians are not race or religion-based. They are purely driven by security concerns as a result of past acts of terrorism that led to loss of Israeli life. What about Gaza? Defenders of Gaza say the case against using the apartheid label is even easier to make in the Gaza Strip because Israel pulled out of the coastal enclave in 2005. There were too few Jewish settlers in Gaza to justify Israeli occupation, officials said at the time. With the withdrawal, which soon left Gaza under the control of the militant group Hamas, freed up more Israeli forces to patrol the West Bank. Rather than occupy Gaza, Israel imposed a blockade on it, with help from Egypt, which usually blocks its sole border crossing with the enclave, Israel uses its military to control land, air, and sea access. But Human Rights Watch and others argue that the blockade itself is a form of apartheid because it maintains the domination of one ethnic group over another. What does all of this have to do with the war? For some pro-Palestinian activists, the word provides context, if not justification, for the October 7 attack by Hamas that started the war and killed about 1,200 Israelis. After all, some argue black South Africans and their supporters use violence on occasion to fight for their freedom. Israel and others, however, maintain that the Hamas violence was so extreme, including the rape of and, or sexual abuse of a number of women, among with its taking of more than 200 hostages, that it does nothing to further the cause of Palestinian statehood. With no clear end in sight, the war is one of the deadliest chapters in a conflict that began eight decades ago. Israel has vowed to continue its retaliatory invasion of Gaza until it destroys Hamas, a campaign that Gaza health authorities say has killed more than 23,000 Palestinians. When the fighting... When the fighting eventually subsides, the United States want Palestinians to take the lead in post-war Gaza administration. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel will continue its renewed occupation of the impoverished territory for the foreseeable future. That would be likely to strengthen the argument of those who accuse Israel of being an apartheid state. What are the long-term prospects for an end to the debate over apartheid? Kenneth Rupp, who was executive director of Human Rights Watch from 1993 to 2022, oversaw production of the report on apartheid, said that Israeli authorities have long insisted that ending discriminatory policies depend on, depended on peace negotiations. But three decades on, with no real peace process in motion, that explanation lacked credibility, Roth said. Israel has continued to support Jewish settlements in the West Bank constructing or bypass roads accessible only to the settlers and expanding military checkpoints.
moves that Roth and others say all but eliminated the possibility that the West Bank could someday become an independent, continuous Palestinian state. What is left is Swiss cheese, he said. Experts said Israel will be left with only two ways to shed the apartheid label, allowing the creation of a Palestinian state or granting equal rights to all Palestinians under its control. That was How Apartheid Came to be Associated with the Israelis by Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 11, 2024. Alright, let's move on to some other news from the same Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 11, 2024. Zelensky visits Baltics to seek aid. Ukraine's leader says Russia can be stopped, but Kiev needs more air defense systems by Ludus Dapkus. Vilnius, Lithuania. Ukraine has shown the world that Russia's military can be stopped, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Wednesday as he began a visit to the Baltic nations in search of more help for his country against the Kremlin's larger and better supplied forces in the 22-month-old invasion. Speaking in the Lithuanian capital, Vilnius Zelensky said Ukraine still must bolster its air defenses against Russia's intensified missile and drone onslaughts and replenish its ammunition supplies and long-range strikes become the main feature of this winter's fighting. We have proven that Russia can be stopped, that deterrence is possible, he said after talks with Lithuanian President Getanis Nasida on his first foreign trip of the year. The massive Russian barrages, more than 500 drones and missiles, were fired between December 29 and January 2nd to, US, to officials in Kiev, who are, are, are using up Ukraine's weapons stockpiles, however. The escalation is stretching Ukraine's air defense resources and leaving the country vulnerable unless it can secure further weapons supplies. We lack modern air defense systems badly, Zelensky said, noting that they are what we need the most. He acknowledged, however, that stockpiles are low in countries that could provide such material. Warehouses are empty, and there are many challenges to world defense, he said. Ukraine hopes to accelerate development of its domestic defense industry and establish joint projects with foreign governments to speed up ammunition and weapons production. Ukrainian officials traveling with Zelensky signed several documents on cooperation on joint arms, joint arms production. Similar agreements are expected in the other Baltic countries Zelensky is expected to visit this week. The focus of his two-day trip to Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia will be security, Ukraine's hopes to join the European Union and NATO, and building partnerships in drone production and electronic warfare capacities, Zelensky said on his Telegram channel. He thanked Lithuania, where he arrived Wednesday, for its military assistance and goodwill. He was expected in Estonia and Latvia on Thursday. We know how tiring this long-running war is, and we are interested in Ukraine's complete victory in, in it as soon as possible, Nasida told reporters. The small Baltic countries are among Ukraine's staunchest political, financial, and military supporters, and some in the Baltics worry that they could be Moscow's next target. The three countries were seized and annexed by dictator Joseph Stalin during World War II before regaining independence with the, Soviet break, with the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991. They joined the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in 2004, placing themselves under the military protection of the U.S. 
and its Western allies. Democratic countries have done a lot to help Ukraine, but we need to do more together so that Ukraine wins and the aggressor loses, Estonian President Alar Karis said in a statement. Then there is the hope that this will remain the last military aggression in Europe where someone wants to dictate to their neighbor with missiles, drones, and cannons what political choices can be made, he said. In his telegram message, Zelensky expressed gratitude to the Baltic countries for their uncompromising support of Ukraine over the last 10 years, going back to 2014, when Russia's aggression started with the illegal annexation of Ukraine's Crimea Peninsula and support for separatists elsewhere in Ukraine's east. Zelensky's energetic international diplomacy during the war has been, has been essential to maintain pressure on friendly countries to keep supplying Kiev with billions of dollars in weaponry, including German Leopard tanks, U.S. Patriot missile systems, and British Storm Shadow cruise missiles. That support has tailed off recently, however. A plan by the Biden administration to send Kiev billions of dollars in further aid is stuck in Congress, and Europe's pledge to march to provide a million artillery shells within 12 months has fallen short, with only about 300,000 delivered so far. Meanwhile, long-range strikes by the Kremlin's forces have continued. Kharkiv came under attack from Russian missiles late Tuesday, said Mayor Igor Terakov. The Russians hit an unoccupied summer camp on the northeastern city's outskirts, he said on Telegram. Several buildings were damaged, but no casualties were reported. Ukraine also kept up its new attempts to hit targets inside Russia. The Russian Defense Ministry said its air defenses downed a Ukrainian drone early Wednesday over the Saratov region of southwestern Russia. Saratov Governor Roman Buzgarin said the drone was downed over the Engels district, which is home to Russia's main strategic bomber base. He said there were no casualties or damage. That was Zelensky visits Baltics to seek aid by Lyudas Dapkes from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 11, 2024. Dapkes writes for the Associated Press. All right, here's something back in the U.S. from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December 30th, 2023. Cohen explains AI-generated legal citations. Ex-Trump fixer tells court he didn't know that cases he sent to his attorney were fake. From the Associated Press, New York, Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former personal lawyer and fixer, says he unwittingly sent bogus artificial intelligence-generated legal case citations he found online to his attorney who submitted them to a judge. Cohen made the admission in a filing unsealed Friday in federal court in Manhattan after a judge asked a lawyer earlier this month to explain how legal rulings that never happened were cited in a motion submitted on Cohen's behalf. Judge Jesse Furman had also asked what role, if any, Cohen played in drafting the motion. The AI-generated cases were cited as part of a written, ar written arguments a lawyer made to try to bring an early end to Cohen's court supervision after he served more than a year behind bars. Cohen pleaded guilty in 2018 to tax evasion, campaign finance charges, and lying to Congress, saying that Trump in order to fend off damage onto his 2016 presidential bid, had directed him to arrange payments of hush money to a porn actor and to a former Playboy model who said they had sexual relationships with the candidate. 
Cohen, who was disbarred as a lawyer five years ago, said in a declaration submitted to the judge on Thursday that he'd found the bogus citations through Google Bard, unaware that the service could generate non-existent cases. He said he uses the internet for research because he no longer has access to formal legal research sources. As a non-lawyer, I, I have not kept up with, re with emerging trends and related risks in the legal technology and did not realize that Googlebard was a generative text service that, like ChatGPT, could show citations and descriptions that looked real but actually were not, Cohen said. Instead, I understood it to be a supercharged search engine and had repeatedly used it in other contexts to successfully find accurate information online. He blamed his lawyer and friend David Schwartz for failing to check the validity of his citations before submitting them to the judge, but asked that the judge show mercy to Schwartz, calling his failure to check the citations an honest mistake and a production of inadvertence, not any in intent to deceive. Schwartz did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The bogus citations were discovered by E. Daniel Perry, a former federal prosecutor who was also representing Cohen in his bid to dissolve his probation early. Mr. Cohen engaged in no misconduct and should not suffer any collateral damage from Mr. Schwartz's misstep, Perry wrote in his submission to the judge. In discussing possible sanctions, Judge Furman pointed out earlier this month that it was the second time this year that a judge in Manhattan federal court had confronted lawyers over fake citations generated by AI. Lawyers in an unrelated case were fined $5,000 for citing bogus cases invented by the AI-powered chatbox ChatGPT. In his 2018 guilty plea, Cohen did not name Trump or the two women who received hush money, recounting instead that he worked with an unnamed candidate to influence the 2016 election. With the payment amounts and dates lined up with the with $130,000 given to Stormy Daniels and $150,000 to Karen McDougal to buy their silence in the weeks and months leading up to the 2016 presidential election. Trump denied claims by Daniels and McDougal that they had affairs with him. The Republican went on to defeat Democratic rival Hillary Clinton that November. Trump's personal lawyer at the time of Cohen's uh, 2018 guilty plea Former New York Mayor Rudolph W. Giuliani noted in a statement that there was no allegation of any wrongdoing against the president and the gov government's charge charges against Mr. Cohen. That was Cohen explains the AI-generated legal uh, citations from the Associated Press out of the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December 30, 2023. All right, here's something from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 11, 2024. Family loses Nazi loot battle. Museum in Spain will keep paintings stolen from Jewish collector in World War II, court says, by Kevin Rector. A decades-long court battle over a famous painting that was looted from a Jewish family by the Nazis at the dawn of World War II took a devastating turn for the family on Tuesday when a federal appellate court in the U.S. rejected their plea for the artwork's return. The court's decision means that the painting Rue Saint-Honoré in the Afternoon, Effect of Rain, by Camille Pissarro, will remain in the possession of the Tyson Bornemisza Collection, a museum owned by the Spanish government, rather than be returned to the descendants of Lily Cassirer, a Jewish woman who was forced to hand the painting over to the Nazis in exchange for her freedom from Germany in 1939. 
the ruling by a three-judge panel of the U.S. Ninth Court, uh, Circuit Court of Appeals was a shock to the family and their lawyers who had anticipated the painting's long-awaited return after a unanimous, albeit legal, narrow decision in their favor by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2022. Instead, the appellate court ruled in favor of the Tyson Bornemisa collection, which I found had gained prescri prescriptive title to the painting when it was purchased, uh, when it purchased it, and a trove of other precious artworks in 1983 from Baron Hans Heinrich von Tyson Bornemisa, a Swiss art collector and the heir to a vast German steel empire. Diva Kassiri, uh, 69, the lead plaintiff in the case, and Lily Kassiri's great-grandson, deferred comment to his family's longtime attorney, Sam Dubbin, who told the Times they were surprised and disappointed by the decision. Dubbin said they will ask for reconsideration by a largely 11-judge and bank pa uh, panel. In a statement, Dubbin said, Dubbin and the family... In a statement, Dubbin and the family's other attorneys said Tuesday's decision fails to explain how Spain has any interest in applying its laws to launder ownership of the spoils of war, a practice outlawed in the Hague Convention of 1907 and a series of other international agreements joined by Spain over a century. For over a century. The lawyer said the ruling does not address how a national museum owned by the Spanish government justifies holding onto a painting that it knows was looted by the Nazis from a Jewish family in the Holocaust. The museum's attorneys, in their own statement, praised the court's decision, calling it a welcome conclusion to the case. The painting of a Paris Street scene in 1897 and 1898, and estimated to be worth tens of millions of dollars today, had hung in Lily Kassira's Berlin apartment when the Nazis took power. After it was stolen, it was brought to the United States illegally and sold by a Beverly Hills gallery in 1951 before the Baron purchased it from a New York gallery in 1976. Uh, the museum said it legally acquired the painting in the 1993 purchase. The Cassira family considered the painting lost until Claude Cassira, Lily's grandson and David's father who has since died, discovered in 2000 that it was part of the Tyson Borda Mesa collection. The family filed its lawsuit seeking the painting's return in a federal court in Los Angeles in 2005. The case has been watched closely for decades as one that raises important legal and deeply moral questions about what is fair when it comes to Nazi-plundered artwork and other Jewish wealth. Circuit Judge Consuelo M. Callahan wrote in a concurring opinion that though she agreed with the ruling in the museum's favor as a matter of law, it went against her moral compass. Callahan wrote that the Spanish government should have voluntarily relinquished the painting to the family under an international agreement on the return of Nazi looted art that Spain and dozens of others, other countries signed in 2009. Though the law compelled a ruling against the family, I wish that it were otherwise, Callahan wrote. The emotional heft of the case is partly owed to the clarity of its origins. All of the parties agree that Lily Cassira a member of a prominent art-collecting Jewish family in Berlin was forced to part with the painting by a vicious and well-organized Nazi program to strip Jewish families of their wealth before they were systematically killed during the Holocaust. Lawyers for the museum have not argued that the Fasara wasn't stolen from the Kassiras by the Nazis. Instead, they have argued that neither the Baron nor the museum knew it was looted, 
and let Spanish law protect their modern ownership of the piece. Lawyers for the Castillo family strongly disputed that, alleging that the Baron was a sophisticated art collector and that he and the museum had a responsibility to investigate the artwork's origins. They would have known the Pissarro piece was stolen had they done the due diligence required of them as legitimate collectors, the family argued. The family also argued California law demanded the artwork's return. California officials have argued the same in their own filings. After filing their lawsuit nearly two decades ago, the family suffered a series of setbacks as courts in the U.S., including the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit ruled against them. Then, however, the U.S. Supreme Court took up the case, which raised its profile, making it one of the most important cases involving Nazi looted artwork in the world. In 2022, the Supreme Court tossed out the lower appellate ruling against them and ordered the Ninth Circuit to reconsider the case under California law rather than Spanish law. As part of its new review, the Ninth Circuit asked the California Supreme Court to weigh in on how the state's laws applied to the dueling claims from Spain and the Caceres, but the state's high court declined at the request, leaving the matter in the, court, in, the, in the circuit court's hands. In its unanimous order, Tuesday, the court's three-judge panel found that, even under California law, the painting should remain with the museum. The court found it had to consider the interests of Spain and of California in enforcing their respective and contradictory laws governing, disputing, uh, governing disputed claims of title to stolen paintings and ultimately apply the law of the government whose interests would be more impaired were its law ignored. The court found Spain had a strong interest in enforcing its laws within, the board, within its borders and that applying its laws made sense in the Casera case in part because many of the events at issue occurred there, including the museum's purchase and display of the painting. At the same time, the court found that applying Spain's law would only partially undermine California's interest in, de in deterring theft and, <clears throat> and in returning stolen art to victims of theft. So it decided Spanish law won out. Callahan and the panel's other two judges, Carlos T. Bay and Sandra S. Ikuta, were appointed by President George W. Bush. The Castillo family's attorneys said the court's analysis was all wrong and too dismissive of California's interest in the matter. California's laws, as Attorney General Rob Bontrag clearly explained to the court, strongly support the rights of its residents to recover stolen works of art in the hands of museums, they said in a statement. Both David Castillo and his father Claude fought honestly and vigorously since learning that Spain had the Caceres Pissarro painting for the principle that artworks looted by the Nazis or in any similar atrocities must be returned to their rightful owners, they said, and they won't stop now. The Caceres believe that, especially in light of the explosion of anti-Semitism in this country and around the world today, they must challenge Spain's continuing insistence on harboring Nazi looted art, the family's lawyers said in a statement. The court's decision Tuesday, they said, gives a green light to looters around the world. That was Family Loses Nazi Loot Battle by Kevin Rector from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 11, 2024. All right, now we've got this article from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. It's from a section called For Real with Amy Kaufman, Who Are the People Shaping Our Culture? In her column, 
Amy Kaufman examines the lives of icons, underdogs, and rising stars to find out for real. And this is Sarah Silverman's Moment of Reckoning. In the days after the October 7 attack in Israel, Sarah Silverman posted on Instagram a dozen, dozens of times. Like millions around the world, she was devastated by the reports of more than 1,200 civilians killed by Hamas militants and took to social media to express her distress. She shared videos of the festival goers who were taken hostage, words from activists about anti-Semitism, a note acknowledging the war had prompted her to start praying. Then, on the night of October 18, after Israel had announced that the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip would not receive water and electricity until the hostages were freed, Silverman shared a post from an Israeli food vlogger she did not know and said that said Israel did not need to provide Gaza with those resources. After which, she put down her phone and took her two dogs out for a walk. By the time she returned, her set was flooded with text messages from friends asking versions of the same questions, what the F did you just post? The comedian says now that she hadn't read the screen, the screen in full be, uh, before putting it on Instagram, something she insists she never does. She has no explanation for what, why, why she did it that night. I did the worst thing you can do, she recounts. I was talking to a friend on Instagram and I said, I feel like people have just completely forgotten that there, were, there, there are hostages. They were like, totally, and they sent me whatever I, it was I posted. And I read just the top line and put it in my stories. <clears throat> Back at home, she unleashed her dogs and read the whole post, realizing how disregarded the humanity of 2.3 million people who live in Gaza and denigrated Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, of whom she's a fan, she deleted it. But it was too late. Her manager messaged that she was trending on X, where users were accusing her of being pro-genocide at the time. 3,800 Palestinians have reportedly been killed by Israeli military response to the October 7 attack, a, de a death toll that has since risen to more than 15,000. She responded to one person online by saying she made a mistake in the stoned fury of wondering where the hostages are. Because I got high was not an explanation that appeased her critics. The next day, outlets including uh, Newsweek and the Daily Mail had headlines about Silverman being under fire, putting her at the forefront of a political storm in Hollywood that has resulted in firings, listening tours, and finger-pointing. In the span of one week, in November, Susan Sarandon was booted by her talent agency and actor Melissa Bar Barrera lost her lead role in the next Scream film. In October, a top agent at CAA was demoted. They all had made public comments about Israel's treatment of Gazans that their employers deemed anti-Semitic. Although Silverman's reputation may have suffered, if only temporarily, she has not lost any work. But it is rare when a celebrity has a true moment of personal and artistic reckoning. In the months since her fateful post, Silverman says she has been reevaluating her identity as an outspoken comedian and the weight of her word and the weight her words carry when she shares them on her very large public platform. X formerly Twitter, eleven point seven million, Instagram, two million. I know that I speak out about stuff, and that's a role that I've taken on, she says. But there's a balance between that and centering yourself or thinking that what you have to say is incredibly important.
and yeah, she was stoned that night. But she says she usually makes very measured decisions while stoned. That wasn't to blame here. I effed up, Silverman said. I try not to define people by their worst moments, it's, but it's going to pass, or it won't. I can't control it. Silverman 52 was no stranger to backlash. Over the course of her three decades in comedy, she has pissed off a lot of people. In 2001, she used an ethnic slur for Chinese people while doing a bit on Conan O'Brien's show, then tried to defend herself during an ill-fated debate with an Asian-American advocate on Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect. In 2007, she appeared in blackface during a sketch about racism on the Sarah Silverman program. Comedy Central scrubbed the episode from its platforms, but images from the sketch, which Silverman has since said was a mistake she is horrified by, lived, live on in social media. Her career has survived because comedy thrives on shock value, but also because she's been willing to apologize repeatedly and sincerely and acknowledge when her humor has offended or no longer aligns with social mores. Now that she's, not that she's afraid to be provocative, she's unapologetically joked about rape, abortion, and the Holocaust. She likes to cut a smart thought with edgy humor, said Jennifer Flans, the executive producer and showrunner of The Daily Show. To feed the audience an important idea, she uses relatable humor. But as the Israel-Hamas war in the Middle East rages on, Silverman says she's no longer certain how political she wants to be, on stage or online. Part of me really just wants to be dumb and silly and stupid and take that really seriously right now, she says. I don't think of myself as a political comedian. Maybe holistically I am. I don't know. Are we not at all a crossroads at, at a crossroads at this moment? On the late November afternoon, Silverman is sitting in her living room, a camel, camelback water bottle tucked by her side. When I arrived at her house, she announces that she has something she, she thinks we should do during our interview. I glanced at her outfit, an Aviator Nation hoodie, beanie, jeans, athletic slides over socks, trying to ascertain what she might, pro uh, what she might propose. Split a joint or some psilocybin-infused chocolate. I think we could try to drink a lot of water, she says. She's just returned from New York, where she did a week-long stint guest hosting The Daily Show. One day, the staff stocked her dressing room with three huge bottles of water, and she drank all of them. She felt so good afterward that she vowed to commit to more H2O intake. I accepted the hydration challenge. It's not often a celebrity proposes to do an interview in their own home, especially without a publicist hiding in the bathroom. But Silverman isn't guarded by her private life, nor trying to hide in a moment when many other stars might just wait for the news cycle to move on. She seems willing not just to own her, to own her mistake, but also to acknowledge and grapple with the evolving landscape in which it occurred. Her dogs, a small one, Mary, and a big one, Sibby, short for sibling, have followed us over to the couch where Silverman rolls a pet hair remover over the cushions before we sit. The entire home is modern, a big box that, inhabited by anyone else, might feel devoid of character. But she's Sarah, uh, she Sarah fled it. There are labels stuck on some of the kitchen's cabinets, like Panini Press. Her living room is covered with bold floral wallpaper, and a picture of her father and stepmother, who died within 10 days of each other in May, is propped against a wall under the TV. 
Silverman's boyfriend, with whom she shares her home, asked recently if she wanted to move the foam board photo from their funeral to a more permanent location. She told them she just wanted to leave it there for a while. The comedian has been dating Rory Albanese, formerly the showrunner of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, for about three years. Albanese is now a writer for Jimmy Kimmel Live, so he's out of the house for a lot of the day. Silverman fills her schedule with what she calls odd jobs, recording her call-in podcast, doing stand-up, taking occasional acting roles. Including one in Maestro, the Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein biopic directed by and starring Bradley Cooper that before the Hamas attack was the center of its own controversy. Cooper, who was not Jewish, wore a prosthetic nose in the film to more closely resemble Bernstein, a choice that some critics have deemed Jew-face. Silverman plays the composer's beloved and vivacious sister, Shirley, a part she won after auditioning with the nine-page monologue that was initially in the script. It was a much bigger part at first, Silverman says, noting that a rewrite left her character in only two scenes. Bradley called me to talk about it, and obviously I was bummed, but I was like, I understand that this isn't the Shirley Bernstein project. Ironically, Silverman was one of the first prominent Hollywood figures to address the issue of non-Jewish actors playing Jewish characters. In a 2021 episode of her podcast, she pointed to the casting of Felicity Jones in a film about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Rachel Brosnahan in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She regrets that the remarks from her podcast have been boiled down to only Jews should play Jews. Her intention, she explains, was for her listeners to notice that in a time when representation in art is gaining renewed focus, it doesn't seem to bother anyone in the case of this particular minority. I'm not trying to make a rule about it, she says. I love my career, and I have no regrets or bitterness. But it's very interesting that for the bulk of my career, many Jewish actresses, and everyone will point to Natalie Portman and Gal Gadot because they're gorgeous and brilliant, but, we're, but we usually play the friend, the exposition, or the sassy agent. Playing someone who, who deserved love, she adds, was certainly not anything that was really available to me. With Maestro... The fact that Cooper is not Jewish did cross her mind. But the film was being made in cooperation with Bernstein's family and produced by Steven Spielberg, which gave her some solace. Also, she says, a tad incredulously, am I supposed to say no to being able to play a real-life Jewish woman? When the first pictures emerged of Cooper as Bernstein, Silverman calls it Nose Day. She says her publicist was bombarded with requests to talk to the Jew-faced girl about this. None of these inquiring even realized uh, none of those inquiring even realized she was in the film with him, she says. As for the prosthetic, she doesn't see any malice in it and points to the actor's immersive process in physically transforming himself with dental implants, wigs, and costumes. After a first safe shooting wrapped on Maestro, Silverman actually called her manager pleased, sharing that she didn't think Cooper had altered his nose. Because I was nervous about it, she admits. I honestly did not think he was wearing a fake nose, so I was, like, relieved. Since the Israel-Hamas war erupted, however, she has pretty much made a 180 on her feelings about the issue. If non-Jews want to tell and illuminate Jewish stories, uh, great, thank you. The world has changed overnight. This is not an issue for me. When did Silverman become a de facto Hollywood spokesperson for Jews? She isn't sure. 
And the thing is, she doesn't even consider herself particularly Jewish. Growing up in New Hampshire, her atheist parents raised her and her three sisters without religion. They were extremely liberal. Her mother had a white convertible with a license plate that said no war and was painted with peace signs and flowers. Silverman's father owned an outlet store that sold discount fashion and he often kept the heat on in the vestibule, vestibule during the winter so unhoused people could get warm. Silverman's elder sister, Susan, practiced Judaism early, becoming a rabbi and eventually moving to Jerusalem in 2006. While Susan was rabbinical school in New York City, Sarah was getting a start on Saturday Night Live, and they'd host a weekly dinner mixing their friend groups of young students and comedians. But it's only in recent years that Sarah has embraced Judaism more fully, after Susan says Sarah read David Badil's 2021 book, Jews Don't Count. It's gone from something that's unspoken to more of her identity of who she is in the world, says Susan, 60. When I'm home with my family, I've never pushed the Jewish stuff like Shabbat or being kosher. So when Sarah started talking about it and noticing stuff, I was very happy to engage in those conversations. Unlike many American Jews, Sarah says she feels no spiritual ties to Israel, which she has visited twice. People are like, you're going to go there and feel so moved, Sarah says. I don't. I feel no connection to it. But since October 7, she says, every Jew in America is feeling frightened right now. After the attack, Silverman was glued to her phone, checking in constantly on Susan and her family. Her sister has five kids, one of whom is serving in the Israeli army. Susan, meanwhile, was keeping tabs on the vitriol name aimed at Sarah, even getting into a, a back and forth with someone attacking her online. It's infuriating, Susan says. There is, there's this glee in identifying what someone's done wrong and acting like their faults are set in stone. Sarah's whole thing, which is so brilliant, is people grow. Since the negative reaction to her Instagram repost, the comedian has scaled back on sharing her opinions about the violence in the Middle East. The other day, Silverman recorded an episode of her podcast all about the war, only to cut it at the last minute and replace it with discussion of her theory that there's a, there's probably a, there's probably way more prolapsed and, and nooses since the advent of the smartphone. She thinks there's a part of us in conversation. She references me, a Jewish woman, as she says this, that hears the echo of the famous Martin Niemöller confession, then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out. So she still wants to say something, but at the moment, she's doing her best to quell her urge to share her opinions publicly. I don't have to weigh in. This does not have to be my job, she says. They are effing scholars. They are effing scholars. It's insane how everyone is an expert on this region now. I don't know how to solve this, but by the way, neither do you. Stop. Taking a step away from social media has been great, she says. Will she stick with it? Unclear. I make no promises. I don't know who I am tomorrow, she says. We haven't really stuck with this whole water challenge. I never go get beyond one glass and her water bottle is never refilled. Keeping her politics to herself has helped, but she has also left her frust left, it's also left her frustrated. She is broken heartbroken that she's too afraid to post a video of Broadway star singing Bring Him Home in tribute to the Israeli hostages. What she's scared of, specifically, is hard for her to name. 
she tries the answers out loud before cutting herself off each time. I don't know why I'm afraid, she says finally. I don't want to uh, to sully it with people who are looking to, I mean, I don't look at it at the comments. People tell me, God, they're just murdering you. I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh no, how bad is it? Because I'm just protecting myself from it. For all their professional bravado, among those closest to her, Silverman is known as a sentimental softy. He can see it in her home, an old Christmas card from Gary Shandling on the mantel, a pot of Mexican mint, sn uh, mint snipped from a plant her neighbor Jack McBrayer has kept going since college. Last year, the New York Times went as far to, as to say she'd become the unlikely moral center of the comedy community, a Gen X Mr. Rogers. Rogers is one of Silverman's heroes. She thinks he had all the, the right worldview that we should all be taking care of one another. She also likes a joke told by the comedian Neil Brennan about people going up to LeBron James and asking him, Is this you when you were 14? You're only 5'6". Yeah, James replies, but I grew. I feel like lighting, lighting up someone lighting someone up or canceling them and giving them no path to redemption. Who are you? What does that make them what does that make the mob? she says. She has put that worldview into action in recent years, remaining friends with comedian Louis C.K. after he was accused of sexual misconduct in twenty seventeen. I just know that you can love some someone who effed up or did bad things, she said. After I asked about the state of her friendship with C.K., whom she described as one of her closest buddies in her 2010 memoir, The Bedwetter. It's the only time over the course of our three-hour conversation that she grows upset. Is this something we have to talk about, she asks. I still have to answer for Lewis. It ruined like two years of my life. I couldn't promote anything that I did. She's willing to answer for her own errors in judgment, but his? She's not responsible for those. Silverman says she hasn't fallen out with many friends in her life. She tries to foster a sense of community with other comics, especially young ones like Hannah Einbinder, Robbie Hoffman, Beth Stilling. This summer, after she after picketing during the WGA strike, she invited her peers over to swim and smoke pot. Comedians are her people, part of why Stadiff is always where she lands. She loves acting, but can't imagine signing onto a series indefinitely that would take her away from comedy. She did roughly 14 days of on Maestro. Though she's had a number of serious turns and dramas over the years, including Showtime's Masters of Sex and the Billie Jean King film Battle of the Sexes, she still encounters resistance from people in the industry who think of her off-screen persona as distracting to viewers. Some people aren't interested in me as an actor because they feel like no one could get lost in something that I was in, she says. But I don't think that's true. I think I'm capable of disappearing into roles. No one knows Leonardo DiCaprio other than he dates models and you see him on a yacht. He doesn't do, like, wacky games on Jimmy Fallon or whatever. And I think that helps him disappear. I understand that I'm a comedian and I'm outspoken and the other parts of my life are very personality-based, like The Daily Show hosting. She's served as a guest host on The Daily Show twice this year. During the most recent stretch last month, Flans says she noticed Silverman feeding off the energy of the in-studio audience. Meanwhile, online, 
the reception was less welcoming. My concern that week was just to make sure that she felt comfortable and safe, says Flans, who has been with the program for 27 years. She needed to perform every night, so seeing comments and harsh things about yourself and then having to go out and make people laugh isn't easy. Part of my job was to remind her that the audience come to see her was friendly and that she was brave. Even if Silverman could have the Daily Show gig full-time, she wouldn't want it. I don't think that that's for me. It's, that, that's, it's tenable to do with the kind of jobs that I like, she says. She does feel for Hassan Minaj, who reportedly lost the vacant Comedy Central job after a September article in the New Yorker alleged that in his act, he'd significantly embellished personal stories about racism he had endured. Six weeks after the story was published, Minaj released a 21-minute video addressing the supposed fabrications. And when I listened to that, it, was, it definitely made me feel like, wow, they were out to get him. In her own comedy, Silverman tries to make it extremely clear when something isn't true, though she makes small alterations to smooth out her storytelling. In her May HBO special, Somebody You Love, she made a joke about seeing a sign at a pool that forbade anyone from entering who'd had diarrhea in the last two weeks. I mean, just say it, no Jews allowed. In the bit, she was at a ritzy Hawaiian resort. In reality, she was just down the street on the Sunset Marquee. Right after October 7, Silverman says she couldn't imagine going on stage. In the week before her incendiary post, she started canceling gigs, worried she'd go on stage and see people's sweet faces and just start sobbing. It was Chelsea Handler who shook her out of her depression. Handler had two nights booked at the Hollywood Pantages Theater and asked Silverman to do a guest spot during the shows. I said, get your ass down here. This is what we do for a living, Handler says, she, she told Silverman. It's our responsibility to be mood lifters. This is a huge opportunity for all comedians to, to really dig deep and lift others up. And Silverman did feel better after the sets. She could feel how much the audience needs to laugh, how much she did too. As with the water, it's easy to forget how good it is for her. And my heart is, my head isn't there right now, she says, but that's where I want it to be. That was Sarah Silverman's Moment of Reckoning from the For Real with Amy Kaufman section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. For more of Amy Kaufman's in-depth profiles of today's icons, scan this code to download the LA Times mobile app. Okay, and now we're going to turn to the LA Jewish Home publication for January 4th through the 17th, 2024, Volume 2, Number 10. And this is called Year in Review 2023 for the Los Angeles Jewish Home staff. Many hoped that 2023 would usher in a year filled with clarity and calmness. But as we close out the calendar, we are filled with more uncertainty than ever. The events of October 7 overshadowed any other events that took place this year. And since that infamous day, our lives are still reeling. And yet if you look through these pages and take a walk down memory lane, you remember that there were glimpses of lightness that filled this past year. In this section, we tried to give you a brief overview of what took place in the past 12 months. And perhaps bring a smile to your face as you remember that there were some interesting, exhilarating, momentous, and fascinating events that made up 2023. It is our hope 
that the new secular year will bring good news, joy, and clarity to us all. 2023, by the numbers, $245 billion. The financial worth of Elon Musk, who in the second half of 2023 snagged the title of richest person in the world from Bernard Arnault, was only worth $200.6 billion. Population of India, which in April became the world's most populated country, skipping ahead of China, which has a population of 1,425,671,352. billion dollars. The amount of the largest Powerball in 2023 won by an unidentified winner in California on October 11. The one-time cash payout, $774.1 million. The winner has one year to claim the prize. Once the prize is claimed, the newly minted almost billionaire's name will be made public. 91 counts. If you are a Democrat who wants Trump to be the 2024 Republican nominee because he is the gift that keeps on giving, the surest way to bait Republicans to nominate him is to indict him on 91 federal and state felony counts. Trump was first indicted in March 2023 by the Manhattan District Attorney on state charges related to hush money payments in 2016. In June 2023, he was indicted by a federal grand jury in Miami for taking classified documents with him to Mar-a-Lago. In August 2023, he was indicted in Georgia for election interference and also indicted in Washington for his alleged role in the January 6th events. Although Trump's Washington, D.C. case is scheduled for trial on March 4th, 2024, one day before Super Tuesday, on which many states decide a presidential nominee, the Supreme Court agreed to hear arguments on the constitutionality of the Washington case. Therefore, the charges may be dismissed before the trial date, or the case may be delayed pending a Supreme Court decision. $6.4 trillion, the federal government's budget in 2023. By comparison, in 1980, the entire federal budget was $579 billion. The largest expenditure this year was Social Security at 22%. National defense was the second largest expense at 15% of the total budget. In 2023, the federal government brought in revenue, i.e. taxes, of $4.8 trillion. Thus, $1.5 trillion was added to the deficit, which is now $25.8 trillion. 148 days. Length of the Hollywood Writers' Strike The strike ended on September 27 after the Writers Guild of America Union negotiated for writers to get better residuals from streaming services and all sides agreed to a ban on using AI to write scripts. 23. Number of seasons that Tom Brady played in the NFL before retiring on February 1st. His stats scream GOAT. He threw 649 touchdowns, was selected to 15 Pro Bowls, was league MVP three times, won seven Super Bowls in five of which he was the Super Bowl MVP and played until age 45. $787.5 million. The amount paid by Fox News to Dominion Voting Systems settling the voting machine company's defamation lawsuit against the cable network. The settlement on, October, on April 18 came on the eve of trial at which Fox News could have faced a larger verdict for its false claims about Dominion and the aftermath of the 2020 presidential elections. 2023 Notable Deaths Justice Sandra Day O'Connor 
Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Ronald Reagan and served from 1981 until 2006. Despite being the first woman to sit on the highest court in the land, she often said, The power I exert on the court depends on the power of my arguments, not on my gender. She was known as a moderate conservative. She died on December 1st at age 93. Henry Kissinger Henry A. Kissinger, whose family escaped German anti-Semitism in 1938, served as the 56th Secretary of State from 1973 to 77 under Presidents Ford and Nixon. In addition, he simultaneously served as Nixon's National Security Advisor, a position he had held when President Nixon was sworn into office on January 20, 1969. In 1975, President Gerald R. Ford removed him from his National Security Advisory position while keeping him as Secretary of State. He had supreme confidence and is noted to have said, Accept everything about yourself. I mean everything. You are you, and that is the beginning and the end. No apologies, no regrets. Kissinger was instrumental in opening China to the Western world and advocated for compromise with the Soviet Union. He remained an active voice in foreign policy until his death at the age of 100 on November 29. Not everyone liked his policies, though. Upon his death, left-wing Rolling Stone magazine's spiteful headline read, Good riddance, Henry Kissinger, war criminal beloved by America's ruling class, finally dies. Bob Barker For 35 years, Bob Barker hosted the Prices Right, welcoming contestants to vie for prizes by correctly guessing prices and urging them to spin that wheel. Barker, who hosted over 5,000 shows, quipped that it takes many years of hard work to become an overnight success. He hosted the show until the age of 83. I think that age as a number is not nearly as important as health, he said. You can be in poor health and be pretty miserable at 40 or 50. If you're in good health, you can enjoy things into your 90, into your 80s. He died on August 26 at the age of 99. Rosalind Carter Former First Lady Rosalind Carter was married to Jimmy Carter, the 39th President of the United States. Their 77-year marriage, during which they had four children and 22 grandchildren and great-grandchildren, was seen as a model marriage. Rosalind would often talk about how a lot, a lot of work was required to achieve that. When Rosalind married Jimmy at the age of 18, she left Plains, Georgia, a tiny little town of 668 people. For the next six years, they moved around various naval bases throughout the country. But one day... Jimmy decided to quit the Navy and move back to Plains. On the long car ride back to Georgia from Massachusetts, Rosalind did not say one word in the car. Jimmy often quipped that on that car ride, he decided that he would never make another decision without consulting with his wife first. During the Carter presidency, Rosalind was an ever-present fixture in cabinet meetings and on at other presidential engagements. She died on November 19 at the age of 96. Charles Munger Billionaire Charles Munger was Warren Buffett's partner at Berkshire Hathaway for 60 years. We think so much alike that it's spooky, Buffett said about his partner. Charlie and I have never argued, Buffett said in 2014. Munger's business strategy? The first rule of fishing is to fish where the fish are, he quipped at, the, at a 2017 Berkshire meeting. The second rule of fishing is to never forget the first rule. We've gotten good at fishing where the fish are. Ever practical, one of his conditions for donating to universities was that he should have a say in building construction on campus. He explained, anytime you go to a football game or a function, 
there's a huge line outside the women's bathroom. What kind of idiot would make the men's bathroom and the women's bathroom the same size? The answer is a normal architect. Jimmy Buffett. Folk singer Jimmy Buffett's only top 10 song was Margaritaville. Even so, his fans were known as parrot heads, who were not only drawn to his music, but also to his chilled vibes and visions of flip-flops, hammocks, and sunshine. As to why he was so relaxed, he said, is it ignorance or apathy? Hey, I don't know, and I don't care. People were drawn to his different way of looking at things. If it weren't all crazy, we'd just go insane, he'd quipped. Buffett sold over 20 million albums and played at almost 2,000 concerts. Despite his longevity in the music industry, he was not a fan of modern-day music. There's something missing in the music industry today, and it's music. He parlayed his persona into a lucrative band uh, consisting of restaurants, casinos, retirement communities, and best-selling books. With over 500 employees, his worth was an estimated $1 billion, according to Forbes. He died on September 1st, 2023, at age 76. 2023, around the world. Argentina, Jewish, new, new president. On November 19, libertarian Javier Millet, a 53-year-old economist and former band leader, won an, a stunning come-from-behind victory in Argentina's presidential election. During his campaign, he suggested he would replace the Argentine peso, which has lost most of its value amid 143% inflation with the U.S. dollar as the country's national uh, currency and would eliminate the central bank. Malay, who was a huge supporter of Israel, has a particularly close relationship with the Jewish community. He expressed that the only thing stopping him from converting right now is the difficulty of, ob of observ observing Shabbos. But once he is out of office, he will consider converting. Before being sworn in on December 11, Malay made a special trip to New York to daven with the Libavector Rebbe's Ohel in Rosedale, New York. Russia, Ukraine, stalled counteroffensive. In early June, Ukraine's military launched its long-awaited counteroffensive against Russian forces with the goal of reaching the Sea of Azov. This show of strength was not only for the purpose of reclaiming occupied territory on the war's southeastern front, but also to, pro to prove to the Western world that its support of Ukraine was worth the price. However, by November, it was clear that despite high hopes, the counteroffensive had failed, with Ukraine only making incremental gains in South Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky spun the failed counteroffensive to highlight the need for more international support. We wanted faster results, he said. From that perspective, unfortunately, we did not achieve the desired results. And this is a fact. There is not enough power to achieve the desired results faster. He bemoaned that the October 7 massacre in Israel was taking attention away from his war. We can see the consequences of global society switching its attention because of the tragedy in the Middle East. Only the blind could not recognize this. We must not allow people to forget about a war the war here. Attention equals help. Finland, happy. For the sixth year in a row, Finland has been ranked the world's happiest country according to the 2023 World Happiness Report, which is published by the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Israel moved up to number four this year from its number nine ranking last year. The Netherlands, number five, Switzerland, number eight, Luxembourg, number nine, and New Zealand, number 10. Uh, rounded out the top 10. The United States earned the 15th spot. Afghanistan came in last on the list at number 137. Saudi Arabia and Iran, diplomatic ties. 
In a surprise development, Saudi Arabia and Iran established an agreement on March 10 to re-establish diplomatic ties after years of hostilities. The agreement was mediated by China in an apparent dig at the West. China's top diplomat Wang Yi stated that the world is not limited to the Ukraine issue. The two countries reopened their respective embassies in Tehran and Riyadh. Turkey and Syria earthquake. More than 50,000 people were killed and tens of thousands injured after a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck Turkey and Syria on February 6. Israeli search and rescue group United Hatzalah spent six days on the ground in Turkey and rescued tens of victims. However, they were forced to flee the country when they received intelligence of a concrete and immediate threat of an attack on them. Other Israeli aid groups continued to assist on the ground in various capacities in the ensuing months. England, Coronation of a King King Charles III was crowned king at Westminster Abbey on May 6. Although the coronation was steeped in ancient rituals, with St. Edward's crown placed atop King Charles's head as he sat upon a 700-year-old oak chair, there was an undertone of New Age drama. Prince Harry, who has been at uh, odds with the royals, did not have much of an official role, and appeared without his wife Meghan Markle, who had to stay home in California to watch the children. Hawaii, U.S. Tragic Wildfire A fast-moving wildfire broke out on, in Maui on August 8, resulting in the deaths of 97 people, marking it the deadliest fire in the U.S. in over a century. The fire, which burned for three days, decimated the town of Lahaina, destroying more than 2,200 homes. Although Hawaii's electric utility acknowledged that its power lines started the blaze, they faulted county firefighters for declaring the blaze contained and leaving the scene. North Korea, a unique name. If you live in North Korea, and your name is Jue, change it fast. In November, North Korean media introduced North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un's daughter, Jue, as an adorable and notable daughter, noble daughter. Being that North Korea historically has banned people from using the same names as its leaders, North Korean authorities are forcing residents to share the same name as Jue to change their names to something else. Pyongyang City Security Department issued an, an internal order from the central government to change the name of women who use the name Jue within a week. This has led to speculation that Jue is being groomed to eventually be her father's successor. China, Xi holds power. On March 10, Chinese leader Xi Jinping, 69, was awarded a third five-year term. Despite a cerebral demeanor, Xi has rid the ruling Communist Party of rivals and filled its top ranks with his supporters. He broke with the Chinese tradition of leaders handing over power after a decade. The vote by the National People's Congress was unanimous for Xi, 2,952 to zero. Upon meeting with Xi in San Francisco for a China-U.S. summit in November, President Biden called Xi a dictator, eliciting a now-famous mem of a dreadful grimace from U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who was seated in the first row at the press conference. 2023 Things That Came and Went AI Although it's been a theme of dystopian novels for decades, artificial intelligence had a breakout year in 2023. ChatGPT, a chatbot developed by OpenAI and launched on November 30, 2022, was used by millions by January 2023. 
on March 14, OpenAI released GPT-4, an upgraded version of their popular artificial intelligence chatbot setting off an AI frenzy. On May 1st, Jeffrey Hinton, the godfather of AI who earned his nickname for, the, for his pioneering work in the AI field, resigned from his role at Google to help spread the word about the dangers of the emerging technology. According to Forbes, 64% of business, businesses expect AI to increase productivity, while 77% are concerned that AI will cause job loss in the next year. X. On July 3rd, Facebook unveiled Threads to, complete, to compete with Twitter. Within five days, Threads had 100 million users. That must have scared Twitter's owner, Elon Musk, you'd think. Well, at least his company has been around for more than a decade, and its iconic bird logo and name would keep him ahead of the competition. But Musk wasn't sweating it at all. On July 23rd, he rebranded the company formerly known as Twitter and named it X. The bird logo was dismissed from duty as well. Today, X has 353 million users, and Threads is unraveling like a cheap suit. Musk is clearly having fun with X. In April... Musk swapped out the Twitter logo with the Shiba Inu dog emoji, much to the consternation of social media purists who couldn't understand what nerve Musk must have. Answer? A lot. Chinese Spy Balloon From January 28 until February 4, 2023, a highly advanced Chinese spy balloon flew over the U.S. At the time, the Pentagon claimed that the balloon did not collect intelligence while it was transiting the United States or overflying the United States. However, it was later disclosed that the balloon gathered intelligence from several sensitive American military sites and transmitted that information back to Beijing in real time. After much pressure on President Biden to do something about the spy balloon, the U.S. military shot it down February 4, just off the coast of South Carolina. The balloon itself was massive about 200 feet tall, and the payload attached to it was similar in size to a regional jetliner weighing more than 2,000 pounds. Affirmative Action On June 29, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 6-3 vote, ruled that race can no longer be a consideration in the college admissions process. The court held that this practice, which seeks to correct historical racial wrongs, is itself racially discriminatory. Harvard and the University of North Carolina who were parties in the case, argued that affirmative action is necessary to make sure that enough minority students are getting into their schools. Justice Clarence Thomas declared that programs that admit one race over the other fly in the face of our colorblind constitution and our nation's equality ideal. Tucker Carlson The popular primetime Fox News host signed off for the weekend on Friday, April 21st, by wishing viewers the best weekend and telling them he'd be back on Monday. By Monday morning, he was fired. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways, the network said in a statement released by a spokesperson. We thank him for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a contributor. Tucker moved his show to X before starting the Tucker Carlson Network in mid-December. The streaming service costs $9 a month, a small price to pay for his millions of loyal fans. Ozempic Weight loss drug Ozempic, Wego, weight loss drugs Ozempic, Wegovi, and Manjaru became all the rage in 2023, leading to a major supply shortage. In October, Elon Musk attributed his weight loss to Wegovi. Shares of Novo Nordisk, uh, maker of Ozempic, and Wegovi climbed 40% since the beginning of uh, 2023.
orange haze. New Yorkers wait all year for the bright late June weather. But this year, on more than one occasion, we awoke to an orange haze caused by the Canadian wildfires. The toxic smoke resulted in unhealthy air quality, causing many to stay indoors. Over 45.7 million acres were burnt in the Canadian wildfire season this year, which finally ended in October. Came and went in Congress, George Santos. On January 4, George Santos was sworn in to the House after winning the seat to represent his New, the New York's 3rd Congressional District. The 34-year-old Republican was quickly exposed as a degenerate liar. His entertainment value kept growing as each new lie was exposed and explained away by him. Regarding his false claim that he is Jewish, he explained that he meant he was Jewish, meaning like a Jew. But it was not all good old client clean lion. In October, Santos was indicted for numerous crimes, including claims that he stole the identities of donors to his campaign and then used their credit cards to ring up tens of thousands of dollars in unauthorized charges. On December 1st, Santos was expelled from the House of Representatives by a vote of 311 to 114, making him the sixth House member to ever be expelled from Congress. Santos did not waste any time getting back to work. His new job? Selling personalized Cameo videos for $200 a pop. His Cameo account bio refers to him as former congressman, icon. Yes, he still has much pride. Look, they can boot me out of Congress, he declares in a video but they can't take away my good humor or my larger-than-life personality. Kevin McCarthy It took 15 ballots over four days for Representative Kevin McCarthy to finally get the 216 votes he needed to become Speaker of the House. That was on January 7. But on October 2nd, his nemesis, Representative Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, filed a motion to have a vote taken on whether to oust McCarthy. McCarthy responded minutes later on social media, Bring it on. Gates replied, Just did. With the battle lines drawn, Gates was able to get seven other Republicans to join him and the entire Democratic caucus, who all voted to give McCarthy the boot. What followed was a Republican dumpster fire as the caucus spent 22 days trying to elect a new leader. Capping a process that involved four nominees for Speaker, on October 25, Representative Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, nabbed the 250 votes needed and finally became the new Speaker of the House. On December 7, Representative Kevin McCarthy announced that he is retiring from Congress by year's end. Shorts and Sweatshirts In early September, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat of New York, directed the Senate's Sergeant-at-Arms to no longer enforce the Chamber's formal dress code for its members. This was clearly aimed at allowing Senator John Fetterman, Democrat of Pennsylvania, to operate on the Senate floor in a signature gym shorts and hoodie. The move drew quick criticism. Senator Cynthia Loomis, Republican of Wyoming, told Fox News, I've never seen civility enhanced or a sense of decorum enhanced by, address, by addressing like a slob. Senator Fetterman replied on NBC, Aren't there more important things we should be talking about rather than if I dress like a slob? After severe pushback from senators on both sides of the aisle, the Senate, by unanimous consent, passed a resolution formalizing business attire as the proper dress code for the floor of the chamber. And that was the Year in Review 2023 by the Los Angeles Jewish Home Staff. Let's conclude with this uh, article called Lose Views, and this is called Is Colorado Depriving Trump of Due Process by Lou Shapiro. 
In a 4-3 ruling, the Colorado State Supreme Court ruled that Trump's role in the January 6th attack constituted insurrection and ordered his name to be removed from the presidential ballot. They based their ruling on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was added to the Constitution after the Civil War. It was written to prevent former leaders of the Confederacy from regaining power and provides that no person shall be a senator, a representative in Congress, or elector, a president and vice president, or hold any of office, civil or military, under the United States or any other state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such, a, such disability. Trump is appealing the ruling uh, to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Oral arguments are scheduled for January 9, 2024. Legal scholars and political columnists disagree on the ruling. In an LA Times op-ed piece, UC Berkeley Dean Erwin Shumarinsky wrote, The Colorado Supreme Court did the country an enormous service by ruling that Donald Trump is ineligible to be president and squarely presenting the constitutional issue before the U.S. Supreme Court. The high court should take the case and decide quickly whether Donald Trump is disqualified from the ballot because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It would be a political nightmare to resolve this question after Trump wins the Republican nomination, or even worse, after he's elected president. It happens to be that he was one of several constitutional law professors who filed a friend, filed a friend of the court brief with the Colorado Supreme Court to disqualify Trump from the Colorado ballot. Alan Dershowitz, a defense attorney and Harvard academic who defended Trump during his Senate impeachment trial, has long argued that America's court system is being weaponized to bring down former President Donald Trump in ways that violate civil liberties for all. In an interview with Forbes, Dershowitz argued that Tuesday's Colorado Supreme Court ruling to exclude Trump from the state's 2024 ballot sets an especially dangerous precedent. He said that this is an attempt to totally manipulate an amendment that was never designed to disqualify people in future election. Texas will try to take Biden off the ballot, saying he lent support to an insurrection by opening the border. An absurd argument, but not much more absurd than the argument that the four justices of the Colorado Supreme Court. Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal also takes issue with Colorado ruling and described the ruling as a laughable claim in its decision this week that it didn't lightly reach its finding of Trump as insurrectionist and was mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions and solemn about it. The opinion was in fact so wild, glossing over basic questions of due process, federalism, and the Constitution, that three liberal justices strongly rejected it. The majority knew it would be left to the U.S. Supreme Court to clean up their mess. Strassel then zooms out and makes the following observation. There was a day when the professional class, in particular prosecutors and lower court judges, cared about institutions at least as much as about winning. Not this crew. What makes their actions more deplorable is the cynical view that harming the high court is an, is an added benefit, not a cost. They come amid a vicious campaign to vilify the court as partisan and corrupt. If the justices rule against Mr. Trump in these suits, the left accomplishes an immediate political goal. If they rule in Mr. Trump's favor, the left smears the justices and ramps up its campaign to pack the court. 
One of the most frustrating issues with the majority's ruling is that they appear to be sidestepping due process. Due process means that before someone can be convicted, they have a right to be notified of the accusations and defend against it. That is most commonly done in the context of a trial with evidence and sworn testimony. It prevents people from being wrongfully judged for something they did not do. Justice Carlos A. Sumner Jr. was one of the dissenters and focused, focused on this point. The following quotes are from his dissent. These astute words, due process, uttered by U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase a century and a half ago, eloquently describe one of the bedrock principles of American democracy. Our government cannot deprive someone of the right to hold public office without due process of law. Even if we are convinced that a candidate committed horrible acts in the past, dare I say engaged in insurrection, there must be procedural due process before we can declare that individual disqualified from holding public office. Procedural due process is one of the aspects of America's democracy that sets this country apart. The decision to bar former President Donald J. Trump, by all accounts, the current leading Republican presidential candidate, and reportedly the current, lead, currently, current leading overall presidential candidate, from Colorado's presidential primary ballot, flies in the face of the due process doctrine. By concluding that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, the majority approves the, uh, approves the enforcement of that federal constitutional provision by our state courts through the truncated procedural mechanism that resides in our state election code. Thus, based on its inter interpretation of sex, uh, Section 3, our court sanctions these makeshift proceedings employed by the district court below, which lack basic discovery, the ability to subpoena documents and compel witnesses, workable timeframes to adequately investigate and develop defenses, and the opportunity for a fair trial to educate a federal constitutional claim, a complicated one at that, masquerading as a run-of-the-mill state election code claim. And because most other states don't have the election code provisions we do, they won't be able to enforce Section 3. That, in turn, will inevitably lead to the disqualification of President Trump from the presidential primary ballot in less than all 50 states, thereby risking chaos in our country. This can't possibly be the outcome the framers intended. I recognize the need to defend and protect our democracy against those who seek to undermine the peaceful transfer of power, and I embrace the judiciary's solemn role in upholding and applying the law, but that solemn role necessarily includes ensuring our courts afford everyone who comes before them in criminal and civil proceedings alike due process of law. In my view, what transpired in this litigation fell woefully short of what due process demands, because I perceive the majority's ruling that Section 3 is self-executing to be the most concerning misstep in today's lengthy opinion, I focus on that aspect of the legal analysis. Former President Trump has been charged in four separate criminal cases, two of which include accusations of election interference. Of the 91 counts he is charged with, none of them allege that he was an insurrectionist. Several individuals who participated in the January 6th attack on the Capitol were charged with insurrectionism, but Trump was not. Yet the Colorado State Supreme Court majority of justices claimed to know better. The most important part of a closing argument is imparting to the jury how important and sacred the proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard is, that it doesn't just protect the person that they are sitting in judgment on, but it protects everybody from being falsely convicted of something they did not do. And the failure to demand that standard on anyone will result in a lack of protection for everyone. 
That one is Colorado depriving Trump of due process by Lou Shapiro from Lou's Views. Lou Shapiro is a criminal defense attorney, certified specialist, and legal analyst, but most importantly, he makes the end of Shul announcements at Adas Tura. He can be reached at lewisjshapiro at gmail.com. Well, folks, it looks like we are about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.